today on Let Me Be Frank, a very important discussion on uh, the Dobbs decision that came out of the Supreme Court last Friday. Uh, His Excellency Bishop Frank Caggiano is also going to talk about what it means to be pro-life and what we as Christians should be doing from here. Um, Very important. So keep your radio right here at 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, or keep us on your phone using the Veritas mobile app. If you don't have it, you can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. And thank you very much to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, their reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, please visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure as always to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you. Morning, Excellency. As as we begin in earnest the summer, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, I guess... Uh, I just told you, Excellency, but I want to um, let our, li- our listeners probably know that we record most of our shows remotely. I'm recording this morning from a hotel conference room, and there's been street noise outside, so I just want to apologize, I guess, up front for that. It shouldn't take away, I think, from uh, the importance of today's show. No, and- absolutely. And you are in the, in the belly of the beast. <laughs> yeah. Because you're yeah. outside Washington, D.C. Just- just outside D.C., yes. <laughs> where, but where there seems to be a lot going on, huh? <laughs> and we've avoided it. We, uh, it just happened to be coincidence that we were down here. But, um, yeah. you know, Excellency, I think one of the real benefits of Let Me Be Frank, I think, is that we can hear from you directly on things, important, including mm-hmm. yeah, important uh, current events that we should be invested in as Catholics. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's probably... Mm-hmm obvious to listeners that I'm leading into the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court, which Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about a little bit when the decision leaked, but now it's official. And it is one of many rulings that seems to indicate a wholesale shift in the majority philosophy on how to proceed in the interpretation of the Constitution, which could be revolutionary in many ways. And I think for us, um, as citizens, of course, as members of the country, as well as believers and Catholics, I think we have to see it from two perspectives. And I am not a lawyer. I am not a legal scholar. I am an armchair uh, observer. Let's put it that way. Nonetheless, um, I welcome those who are listening, who are lawyers, and particularly constitutional lawyers, to really weigh in with their thoughts and opinions and perhaps in a future show, we could invite one or two who come forward to really educate us on what's really going on here. Because whether it was the ruling uh, in the Dobbs case, which has a profound impact on the work of, of trying to protect unborn life, to the recent ruling um, for the coach who knelt in prayer 
and was fired at times, and now he has been vindicated. Um, and to other issues as well. There seems to be something very, very, very significant happening. So, what I'm about to share with you comes from an article that I read by Morgan Marietta in the Ohio Capital Journal. And he is a uh, constitutional lawyer. He is a Supreme Court scholar. And uh, Morgan Marietta gives us a background um, into at least an opening into the inside of what we're talking about. And I think it is, um, it's worth going through because for me personally, it helped clarify my understanding of why the Dobbs case could really be revolutionary. Because I had known before reading the article that there's two ways, there are two different philosophies of looking at the Constitution, right? There is what a, a conservative a branch of scholarship calls originalist, right? That they look at the Constitution in its historic context and they try to discern from the original meaning of the Constitution how it applies to law, whatever, whenever that law is made. Because at the basis of that is this understanding that the people who ratified the Constitution have the ability to amend the Constitution. And therefore, they need to articulate clearly what it is, if anything, that requires the Constitution to evolve. Therefore, you have amendments, and we've had many of them. In fact, we had an amendment that we repealed the amendment, and prohibition is a perfect example, right? Um, so that in that originalist understanding, it really is the people's voice in articulating or explaining or making more profound understanding of the Constitution through the amendment process. But the justices are required to look at it in its original understanding historically. And then there is another view that it is more of a living, I'm not exactly sure how to put this, scholars would put it in much better terms than I could, but like a living understanding of the Constitution, right? right? And the living one is based on the idea that public values change, and as they change, there is the understanding that new rights emerge, and when the new rights emerge, that the justices, looking at the Constitution as a living document, could say, yes, this is a right that is implied in the Constitution. So there's two ways of looking at this. And I think it's fair to say that the latter, this living understanding of the Constitution, has been in effect for, I mean, a good part of the 20th century, at least the last half of the 20th, at least my lifetime, right? That has been the case. Now, the Dobbs decision and these other decisions seems to be signaling a, a shift, right? Yes. And uh, Professor Marietta says in the article published that um, Justice, um, I think it's uh, Alito, uses the word ab arrogated, arrogated, which means it literally is taken out, literally taken out, that the, the justices did not have the power to rule in favor of in Roe versus Wade, the originally, they did not have the power to do that because it's not in the Constitution explicitly, okay? Now, 
so you see that that's, and you can see that divide in, in the country in so many other ways besides in legal stuff, right? There's this sense that the, the country has a set of values and a set of principles that we were founded on and that really has to guide us and it has to guide us in a very firm way. And there are others who say well, we're evolutionary and therefore we can evolve and change over time, right? And we have to see the signs of the times. And again, as from an armchair looking at the, at the court, I think Justice Roberts seems to be a person that's trying to be in between the two. Is that fair, you think, from your yeah, perspective as well? Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. So to go specifically to rights, there are explicit rights. We have the Bill of Rights, right? So we have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom to bear arms. And then there are what's called implicit rights or evolved rights, again. And the professor here outlines that. So a, a right to abortion, to gay marriage, and others would be more in the implicit rights, evolved rights. Now, it's not to say that the people of the United States could not, through an amendment, add it to the Constitution explicitly, right? But given the division in the country, there is no possibility, I don't think, of any amendment to the Constitution being passed for the foreseeable future. Right. And that's why there's so much passion in this. Apart from faith and apart from the issues at hand, why there's so much passion in here. But at the base of it is how do the people appropriately exert their will in the creation of law and the interpretation of law? And I think um, the ruling here says that voice of the people is in the state level to decide these issues, not on the federal level or the U.S. constitutional level. Now, again, I did not realize this. The Ninth Amendment to the Constitution says this. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So the Constitution itself maintains that there are other rights not listed. The question is, how do you determine what those rights are and where do they have a basis in law? Now, this is way beyond my depth, okay? But there is a standard that is out there from 1997 that again, when we have our guests come who could talk to this, they could really educate us. There is a standard. And at the heart of it, if I understand it even somewhat correctly, there has to be clear historical evidence that the right has existed for a perennial period of time, presumably from the beginning of the country's existence. Hmm. Right? And I think part of the Dobbs decision, there's an indication from the justice, Justice Alito, that Abortion was considered illegal in the country for generations until the early 1970s. So the historical evidence doesn't exist that could justify this is implicit from the Constitution from its creation, right? Right. So it's a, it's a, leg, a legal argument. Um, and it's fascinating because if this maintains, it, it, can, it can really, uh, in many ways, set an entire new course for the, for the U.S. Supreme Court and how it interprets law. So it is historic in many ways. 
So now talking to the substance at hand, which the Dobbs case, all right, you see, from my, from my perspective, apart from being a bishop, a man of faith, in my simple way of looking at things, and it is very simple, you know, the doubt of law has always been something that never made sense to me in Roe versus Wade. The doubt of law meaning that if, if you do not know for sure that a fetus is a person or not, would you not then consider the fetus to be a person with rights until there is definitive conclusion otherwise? But it's almost as if the court decided that, in fact, it was not a human person. And therefore, you don't have to balance the right of a mother person with a child or a fetus as a human person, which is a different discussion than if you say the fetus is not a human person. That, just from a logical point of view, that always did not make sense to me because there is no definition of when human life begins, either, certainly not on the federal level, right? So in effect, what this case does, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this returns the question of the status of the fetus and whether or not abortion would be permitted and how it would be permitted to every state of the country to decide. Now, we as people of faith, I as a leader in the church, I am grateful that we have made this change because it will protect unborn life, which I and all believers in the Christian faith are, should be committed to protect from the moment of conception. Because from the natural law and from revelation, we know life is sacred from the moment of its conception. And we believe that life to be a human life and it evolves undisturbed to become a viable human person. And therefore, from its very beginning, it needs to be protected, and the values of society need to protect it, right? And the question of exceptional cases and the question of, of how sexuality has changed in our modern world, so that is mostly, not mostly, often divorced from marriage, that's a whole nother question that has to be addressed on, the, on values. But from, from our faith perspective, life is sacred from the moment of conception. And therefore, anything that allows that to be protected further is a, a step forward for us. But having said that, now that 50 states have this question in hand, the work really begins. Because we really need to do a much better job as believers to explain the why we hold what we hold. For it is clear that the majority of Americans do not either understand it, or if they understand it, do not accept it. So while this may be a step forward, it is, we should not deceive ourselves that this is a huge step forward because we have a lot of work to do Yes. to try to help people to understand what we understand and believe in, right? Yes. Yep. So now it's going to be in 50 different states, right? Yeah. And that will require a tremendous amount of dedication. And in some way, shape, or form, I think the genius of Catholic faith is that the life issue, which is extraordinarily evident and important in unborn life, is a continuum that covers all of life. 
So there are those who oppose us in our position for abortion who stand with us in other issues of life. And I think we need to find a way to engage everyone in the areas in which they agree with us and help them to understand why we, from that position, hold a much more comprehensive and broad position right, on life. And unfortunately, right, for believers, we are divided ourselves in what the, if I may say, the agenda of life really includes. Is that fair or is that, yes. too, is that being too critical? No, I think, I think you're right, Excellency. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, for, for the question of abortion, the church's stance is clear from the natural law and divine revelation. Okay. And if you need nowhere else to go in divine revelation, at the moment of the Annunciation, when the Lord Jesus was conceived in the womb of our Blessed Virgin, our mother, his mother. From that moment on, salvation history began in a definitive way because that was the Savior incarnate in her womb. Not two days later, six days later, five weeks later, six months later, from the very moment the Savior entered creation. So we who are made in the image and likeness of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? so the same is true for us. It's just a logical consequence. Of, apart from everything else we can say about life, which is a lot, just mm-hmm. that alone yeah. is the foundation. right? And I remember being in the seminary that, <laughs> I forget who said this, you know, God um, didn't make junk mm-hmm. being us, but he valued it so much, he took on a human life in all things but sin. But allow me to say this, if I may, all right? Do you have any, did you want to add anything before I no. just keep going on and no, on? No, 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 please. Sure. The, the, the prime difficulty that we are experiencing here, I think, is the breakdown of the common values we hold together as a nation. Because if, in fact, the determination, the discernment of implicit rights in the Constitution depend in part on the values we hold, whether you hold a living constitution idea or even an originalist in the Ninth Amendment to say there are rights that are implied, right? Nonetheless, it's the values. And, you know, it is clear that a nation is a functioning nation, is born as a functioning society when common values are discerned, held, and memorialized. And again, the originalists would say that is in the founding fathers of the country and in the founding documents. But I think, needless to say, wherever you land on that argument, and again, I would defer to the scholars and lawyers to to help guide us in that conversation. Right now, it's clear that we don't hold common values anymore as a country. And therefore, our institutions are weakening and literally under attack. You have political forces at work which are basically tribalizing the country, right? We have factions, even within political parties, that when something occurs that a person disagrees with, the immediate response is vote the person out of office, redo the the Constitution if you can, um, pack the Supreme Court if you can, Uh, take that party out of power. 
because it's it's a it's a fighting on my values versus yours. Yep. So how do we engage in a conversation on values? Well, one thing is missing. Philosophy is missing. It's not taught in our colleges anymore in any significant way. It's not taught in our graduate studies. It's not taught in our high schools, right? And we are the, we are the bearers, we are the inheritors of a rich history of philosophy, both in the West and in the East. And if, if one does not discipline himself or herself to ask basic questions, to follow logic of reasoning, to divorce one's emotions from one's logic, though emotions inform our reasoning, to be able to very prudently and, and, and judiciously think through some basic questions, like what is human life? What is a human person? What is a common good? then we can never have a conversation on, on shared values. And without shared values, I'm deathly afraid our country is on the way to, I wouldn't say civil discord for sure. God forbid it's worse than that. And we already had experience of that once yep. in our country, yeah. right? What do you think of all this, my friend? You know, I, I wrote down a bunch of questions for you uh, along the way, Excellency. One of the mm -hmm. things uh, you're talking about the the division and the in the the lack of shared values, the inability to to discuss on this. Justice Alito, in his in his decision, he one sentence stuck out to me, and he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, Far from bringing about a national settlement on the abortion issue. Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. And you know, I wonder if it's because the Roe decision and the Casey decisions weren't really, uh, they didn't come about through the process of um, the legislative process, the will of the mm -hmm. people, you know? It was, mm -hmm. so I guess it's also, Hopefully, now that it goes back to the states and their legislatures, we can kind of we can find uh, less anger and vitriol over you know the political issue of abortion mm -hmm. because it's going back to quote the will of the people and the individuals. I don't know if I'm expressing exactly what I'm trying. No, to... No, 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 exactly. I think you're saying it just as I as I tried to before. Absolutely, and see, and the what's interesting is history moves in one direction for a reason. And so if, for example, now the norm is going to be that these issues are decided by the states, then um, it raises a whole host of other issues, including there are states where clearly the conversation that I just suggested for values yes. um, and a plurality of values to achieve a, a new unanimity of values is going to be very hard to have on either side of the equation. Right? So it's just a question of always opposition to like gain power and reverse what you did, which will create political, legal, and social whiplash over and over again. Right? This is not a question of my victory over you. It's a question of finding the truth, right? Yeah. And, 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 and living with the truth, because the truth is what's ultimately going to secure the future of our country. 
yeah. whatever topic we're talking about, this being life and the question of abortion. But in any topic, it has to be based on something more than my emotions or my desire to have power over you or to have victory over you. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it feels like when I was a kid, political leaders, but also people in general, were able to disagree on the issues and not make it about the person, like you're saying, Excellency. Like, so I heard mm -hmm. stories of how Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill would fight voraciously during the day in the offices, and then they'd go out to dinner together. Or Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg and their spouses going to the opera together and having dinner together leaving the argument for what the argument is on the issue and not making it personal. I'm just repeating yeah. what you're saying, what you've been saying. Right. No, but, but again, when it comes to the question of values, yes. that's a very different conversation, right? Because it's not, it's not a question of the corollary or consequence. It's the foundational principles. And therefore, one of the things we have to talk about in the pro-life movement we as believers, is we have to give thought on how to create in the public square the context in which this question of values can be raised mm -hmm. and we can join in the conversation that will initially invite, and rightfully so, if it's going to be a conversation, those who adamantly oppose what we believe. Because at the fundamental, at the foundation of it all, is the premise that the values should be obvious both in the natural and supernatural order. So you need not be a Christian or a Catholic to come to the same values I hold as a Christian or a Catholic because they should be evident in the natural order of life. Yes. Of what it means to be human yep. and what gives dignity and life to human life. Right. And then there's the supernatural order that then graces that and adds to it. So, for example, the fact that you have dignity is obvious in the natural order. The fact that I have to love you right, and will your good despite the cost to my life, even if it requires my death, is in the supernatural order. That's revelation that takes the basic values and infuses them with grace and allows us to live in an extraordinary way in Jesus Christ. But the ordinary way is what's breaking down. Yeah, yeah. So this is a fundamental, the fundamental challenge, in my humble opinion, of our nation now in the 21st century. Because as we're struggling to protect life, we have to create a new center that sees the value of human life from birth because of the inherent meaning it holds, the logic it holds, and then move forward with legislation. What I'm gonna argue when we come back from the break is that we as Christians now have to put our money where our mouth is, and that if we're going to say we want to, we promote life, we have to be at the forefront advocating in concrete ways for women who are pregnant, women who are poor, and for their newborn children who are born, and the life that they live including everyone else, if we're going to be consistent in advocating what we hold, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. So let's, let's talk more about that when we come back. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Uh, we're going to break. We'll be right back.
If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So, Excellency, you were talking about the natural law uh, Mm -hmm. as we went into the break. The natural law is supposed to be written on all of our hearts, whatever Mm -hmm. our professed faith is. Mm -hmm. Um, but there seems to be uh, a forceful rejection of what is written on the hearts of some people. Uh, Well, yes, there is. And, okay, this this itself demands a time for us to really devote to a full podcast. Okay. And this also, we would need some real moral, some competent distinguished moral theologians and philosophers to help us. This could almost be a course, right? Yeah. But this is the way I would simply it, uh, explain it. The natural law is the very, it arises out of the very fabric and structure of who we are. Who as a human being, bodily and spiritually. The natural law is accessible to individuals by virtue of reason. That's why grace builds on nature. It's written in the very structure of who we are and our nature as human beings. So our bodies imply the content of the natural law. Our reason helps us to recognize the foundations of the natural law. It's written into our hearts because our hearts, when they are at peace, right, when there is a clear conscience, illuminates some of the reality and content of the natural law. It's built into who we are. So our anatomy speaks to us of the natural law. And the complementarity of a female and male body speaks to us of the natural law. The fact that we can sit and ask these fundamental questions and through the use of reason come up with some premises that are then validated by human experience illustrates the natural law. That's why the natural law and philosophy go hand in hand. 
And philosophy doesn't have to be esoteric, right? right? It doesn't have to be, you know, written in such a way or taught in such a way that it's totally inaccessible. Or it sounds like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's ethereal. It's like the ethers. I call it like in the ethers of life. It kind of floats out there, right? There's obviously different schools of philosophy, particularly in the modern world. But from Plato and Aristotle onto the, the modernists, right, the contemporary philosophers, I mean, in their interplay, right, in their, com- their discourse over the centuries, in their places where they agree and disagree with the use of reason, it makes clear some fundamental premises, right, some fundamental content that we as Christians believe is essential, we believe it's accessible, we believe that it is logical, and we believe that the inbreaking of grace uses to elevate, right, and bless. So as a Christian, you can't speak of what grace does unless you understand, you understand what nature is. <laughs> and to be honest, in some of the conversations we have had, even in the, in the pro-life movement, there isn't enough of the discussion of the natural peace, all right, that a person who doesn't share the faith, that they could grasp or at least debate with us. Yes. Yep. Right? Yeah. Because the common ground is going to be in the natural order first. Yes. Because they may never come to the supernatural peace that we share, that we believe. But they may have their own religious tradition as well, right? Yeah. But... Right, so that's where I think, and, and therefore we have to do a tremendous amount more work in the natural law. Yeah, yeah, because right. uh, at the March for Life that happens every January, there are not only Catholics, Christians, but there's Jewish, yeah, there's of atheists for life. Of course. That march, of course. yeah. Of course, so. of course. And that's where the conversation is held, right? Yes. That's why I think the theology of the body, when Christopher West was on the show, remember? All yes. The theology of the body, I think that is John Paul, right? St. John Paul's attempt to make Christian anthropology, which is rooted, obviously, in, t- in the philosophical tradition of the church, right? Uh, accessible to people, like understandable to people, right. that the average person could say, well, I can't read the Summa, but yeah, I understand that. That makes sense to me. Yes. Right? So, uh, so that also, um, because there are some um, folks on the pro-abortion side of the issue who will throw at Catholics this argument that uh, Thomas Aquinas didn't mm-hmm. believe that life uh, began mm-hmm. at conception. Right, right, exactly. Uh, Thomas, not everything Thomas held has, has made its way into what I'm going to call the mainstream tradition, and quite frankly, uh, approved by the magisterium. Like for example, Thomas held there was an essential difference between the diaconate and priesthood and episcopacy. And you could read Thomas to actually say that holy orders has two orders, not three. Hmm. And the, the fundamental order is priesthood, not episcopacy. Because for Thomas, again, from my recollection now, now I could stand corrected, but from my recollection of studying Thomas on the time, that the fundamental sacrament is priesthood and the bishop is the high priest, the fullness of the priest, 
priesthood to which he has jurisdiction to be able to exercise and the other priest and the priest in the past does not. Now, that's, that is different from what the tradition, you know, what the magisterium has taught. And the same thing here because of this whole idea of ensoulment. That is, when does the soul get infused into the fetus? And again, I go back to logic. I'm a simple guy from Brooklyn. Simple logic. If you cannot tell me definitively when it happens, you have to presume it happens at the beginning. Yeah. Because to do otherwise raises a risk that you are endangering what could then be a human person. Yeah. Err right? on the side so again, of caution. It, always, because yes. with the law, isn't there the doubt, right? Yes. You're, you're innocent until proven guilty? Isn't that a fundamental premise of American law? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's very safe to say that if Thomas Aquinas had access to the science that we have today... He would certainly could have evolved a different opinion, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Because on the other hand, you can reverse the logic. So, if you cannot tell me definitively when the ensoulment occurs, or when you cannot tell me definitively that the fetus now is a human person, whether it's viability outside the womb, or viability with assistance, or an artificial uh, uh, uterus where you could, con in this, in what sign, that you could actually have a, a child conceived even outside of a mother, yeah. which I think is like science fiction in some ways, and scary, with the implications of that psychologically in so many different ways, all right? But if you can't tell me that, then it's logical that eventually you're gonna say that personhood is at birth, right. or perhaps not even at birth. Yes. So what the Romans did. The Romans yeah. said it was 30 days after birth that, that this thing had rights as a human person. You see what I mean? So where do you end? So doesn't the doubt say, until you definitive, it starts here. It has to start here, right? Again, again, I see things in very simple ways. And that's the sort of conversation that in the public square with people who do not agree with us, that's the sort of conversation you have to have. Then give me the logic of why you think a human person would start somewhere else. Right. Because it, 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 it's arbitrary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you want to, and if you want to follow the science, the science and the technology continues to make it. Yes, of course. Uh, of course. Yes. Clearer. Um, earlier and earlier. Yes. Viability but, is earlier and earlier. Right. But right. in a society that also rejects, of course. So abortion right now is the preeminent pro-life issue for us because of the murder of millions of unborn babies Correct. every year Correct. but in a society that rejects even you know elderly and sick and even non-sick mm -hmm. people who just feel like they don't want to go on anymore mm -hmm. gosh i mean the 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 job for us seems huge <laughs> yeah it's daunting yeah it's daunting it's daunting because in a sense um the abortion debate and so many other debates have been reduced to an, uh, my struggle for my own individual right. Now, in the abortion question, it becomes clear to me that in everything we've talked about, in the doubt of the law, 
that the fetus is a human person from conception because you cannot destroy, you cannot demonstrate to me otherwise, mm. definitively. You just can't. Okay. So then there are two. In the, there are two it, human persons and the rights that are competing between the two. But the but the pro-abortion movement does not accept that and has been very adept at moving the conversation so that it's just what we call a woman's rights issue. And of course, women do have rights, right, in the autonomy of their life, certainly, right? But this is, this, in, in, if it's a question of a person's right against another right, then there's a body of law that already dictates how that is, that is held. And the willful killing of, it, of another human person is not permitted in the law. I can't come up and shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> It's not permitted in the law. I can shoot you, but I'll suffer the consequences. Um, but anyway, so I think from our perspective, it goes back again. In the pro-life movement, we now have work in three regards. The first is to educate the largest society, both in the natural realm and the supernatural realm of why we hold what we hold. Secondly, in every state, where that conversation could be easier or more difficult, depending on which state you live in, that has to become now a major initiative. And it's going to be a very hard conversation because we have to have the courage to sit with people who are vehemently, angrily opposed. And I just received an email a, a day ago from a gentleman in our diocese who is disaffiliated from the church and just said the most horrible things Right, because he's what he's basically said in the email is, you people who endured the sexual abuse crisis, you say you value life. Now you're talking about this victory, which is squelching the rights of others. And what victory is this? I'm done with you. And there's going to be a lot more of that. Unfortunately and sadly, there's going to be a lot more of that. My hope would always be to be able to sit down and engage that person, right? To have a conversation with that person, right? Because that's what the Lord asks of us. Yeah. Right. And then the third, so on the state level, in the local level, in the parishes, there's going to be much conversation, right, in our communities, in our, our cities. And, and then there is what you, you raised, Steve, which is if we're pro-life, we're pro-life. We're pro-life, all mm -hmm. life, every life of every stage, we're pro-life. And we have to articulate what that means and stand for it in such a way that we as Christians stand united in this and we're not yeah so for example for example just one example we speak of innocent life and guilty life in a lot of commentaries in christian circles mm -hmm. so innocent life is unborn life of course because there isn't a choice of freedom therefore that life has to be protected rightfully so it's protected in my mind because it's life the fact that it's innocent is secondary. It is life. But the same argument goes for those who are Christian, who oppose abortion, and advocate capital punishment. And they will say, that's guilty life. That's life that understood what it was doing, caused irreparable harm, could have conceivably caused the death of other innocents in that situation they found themselves. And that person has incurred now a penalty of their own choosing in the end. Mm -hmm. 
Therefore, that life need not necessarily be protected from the imposition of a capital punishment. But my argument to that would be, but that's still life. Yes. And the author of the life is God. And the determiner of the end of that life is the same God. And you and I are not God. Yeah. Should that person be punished? Absolutely. Should that person have no contact, no access to society? Absolutely. Society has a right to protect itself, without a doubt. And if it cannot protect, protect itself by allowing that person into its midst, that person will never enter into society again. But that we say, because it's guilty, it's not worthy of protection, is illogical in the gospel of life. Yep. Right? Yes. Yes. I, I think people take one part or the second part of what you just said instead of taking the whole of what you just said because what you said is a lot but depending on where people fall on their side of the quote argument they'll just take one one sentence or the other because this is the other piece to this puzzle okay is life inherently have meaning and dignity or do you earn it now anybody who says you earn it is betraying the gospel mm-hmm. because who on this podcast earned the merits of Christ's death on the cross. Who had, would have the audacity to say, yeah, I deserve that. Yeah, I merit that. Nobody. Nobody. Period. So that's the point. Yeah. The point is, in some way, God, God's love for us is not one that is d- dependent on our merits or earning it. I've said that over and over again. So in this case... A person has made, like saying capital punishment, a person has made a grievous, serious evil in the world. And they have to be held accountable. And there are ways to do that even unto the end of their lives. But for us to impose a death penalty is, is, is in that life which is guilty, playing the role of God that we cannot do. So in the end, even in our thinking as believers, we have a long way to go to make it a consistent message, which would then have greater credibility in the public square. Because one of the things in the public square that people who do not share our values, do not see the natural law the way we do, and do not obviously accept the revelation of the gospel, they will say to us, you people are not consistent, so why are you coming to tell me about this issue? And they'll also say to us, you're not putting your money where your mouth is. Now, I would argue that coming out of this decision, what we have to do, at least in our diocese, is we have to give thought to all those individuals who have been praying and working on behalf of life, who have been doing the hard work of supporting pregnant women and newborn children and children in crisis. And there are many in our diocese for which I am extremely grateful Right? They are in many ways the hidden, unsung heroes of life in our midst. Now they have to be joined by tens of thousands of other believers. And we have to be able to find ways so that if there is a pregnant woman in our state where abortion is legal and now enshrined in our state law that is, has a doubt whether or not that she wants to do this, but she has the economic and social and family um, pressures on her 
to enter into an abortion, if she can't turn to us, then we have partially failed her. Yes. Right? Yep. And uh, when people say, you know, Catholics don't put their money where their mouth is, I think when you look at things like Malta House, Good mm-hmm. Council Homes, all of the mm-hmm. uh, Catholic mm-hmm. adoption agencies, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And which also, like you said, need our support. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we haven't told that story effectively. We haven't. Mm-hmm. We haven't. And the other countless ways that our parishes support with diaper drives and, yes. and uh, luncheons and breakfasts to raise money for local charities. And quite frankly, to give assistance even to non-sectarian services that help pregnant women with no other cause except to help them with food and clothing and shelter and all the rest. Right? There is a lot being done. My point is, Archbishop Lori, when the decision was rendered, made a statement and I'm paraphrasing it because I, 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 I tried to look for it before we, had, we recorded. But he says something to the effect now, now it's the church's business to make sure we're at the service of every woman who's pregnant and in need. Well, that is a daunting challenge. But can we rise to it is the real question. And let me just say this. Remember our conversation about holiness and the remedy the recipe for the renewal of the church, heroic personal holiness and communities that took the relatives of those who were martyred and made them, cared for them as part of their family. In a sense, we're saying the same thing in the 21st century. Will our communities of faith take in those women who really, and care for them, who really have nowhere to turn but do not wish to have an abortion? Can we provide them the help they need? and support them and love them as Christ did. Yeah. That's the question. And we have to think about that hard and long on how to do that. And I'm committed to do that. You know, and so <laughs> the other thing that occurs to me, Excellency, um, as we're talking, and so this is Steve Lee talking, it's not Bishop Frank Caggiano, but mm-hmm. it occurs, uh, there seems to be a big difference between how people on the pro-life side demonstrate you look at the March for Life and it's peaceful, it's prayerful, and it's mm-hmm. joyful mm-hmm. Uh, versus the reaction here, which has been, you know, yes. vi- destroying mm-hmm. Catholic churches and, and other mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. threatening the justices and their families. Uh, right. I mean, uh, yeah. Right. Right. Well, why is that the case? I think the only true answer would be to literally sit with every person who is, who is acting that way and ask them if they're even able to articulate the wellspring of the, the, the rage that they have, okay, that is doing that, responding to that. Because it's certainly not opening itself to dialogue, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. But I guess in the end, and this is very judgmental on my part, and those who are listening, Please feel free to correct me. Send in your email. Send them all to Steve. Don't send them to me. Send them to Steve. <laughs> but, but in a world that is becoming more and more subjective, more and more centered on me, myself, 
if you tell me I cannot do or I do not have the right or I am in some way not empowered to make this decision without hindrance or encumbrance of any kind, then you are fundamentally attacking the philosophy of my life. Hmm. And it's seen quickly as deeply personal and it can elicit some real phenomenal anger, which is what I think we're seeing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there was a, a great piece by uh, Father Paul Scalia in the Catholic thing um, recently where he talks about this uh, desire for freedom today among people and it's they desire freedom from XYZ instead of a freedom for ABC mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that freedom from is um, is a freedom that enslaves I, I, I can't do it justice but uh, but that was mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of the idea I think I was I just going to yes Father Scalia is, is a tremendous tremendous writer tremendous thinker and of course his father was the Supreme Court Justice so he had a great tutor, but I didn't want to cut you off, Steve. I was just gonna. I was just gonna uh, say, as I listen to you, Excellency, today, there's. I keep. It keeps echoing in my head the line that Saint Paul wrote to Saint Timothy, and he said, mm-hmm. "If I, th- I, and I just think if we take this, if we each individually take this uh, approach," he said, "I'm paraphrasing again. Christ Jesus came to save all sinners, of whom I am foremost." Amen. And in a sense, this is a moment for the church and for all of us who believe so passionately in the issues of life, starting and perhaps preeminently at this moment with unborn life. This is a moment for us to be humble, to be open, to reach out, to seek dialogue, not simply to create civic peace but because if we're going to have a lasting change right we need to engage everyone in this question of the values that bind us together and that will be a very hard long arduous conversation to have i will be long dead before we get to any conclusion but the bottom line is we have to start that conversation. Yeah. We have to give thought how to do that, especially given the passions that have arisen, right, which are profound. Uh, so in a sense, I think that the case that was the Dobbs case is a step forward, huge historic step forward in the protection of unborn life. But it has given us 10 times more work to do as a church, if we're going to be consistent in the message and in our commitment to life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. Okay. So let's take our final break and come back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there.
Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, here is this week's listener question. In the creed, it -hmm. says Jesus descended into hell. Can Mm -hmm. you explain how and why he descended into hell? Well, the question of how, I have no idea. (laughs) And the tradition doesn't explain how, because that is part of the divine mystery of the resurrection of the Lord, right? The death and resurrection of the Lord. But why is simply for this reason. If definitive offer of salvation comes in Jesus Christ, what about the just, faithful women and men who lived and died before him? Would they be denied everlasting glory simply because of chronology and time? And the answer is no. So in a sense, the descent among the dead, the descent into hell, was the outreach of grace that poured out of the death and resurrection of Christ that extended beyond the confines of history in this world, but to encompass all creation, but most especially all humanity, from Adam and Eve, and all those who were considered just, that is, they didn't have the advantage of hearing the gospel, and so they lived a just life according to their right reason, natural law, and according to the revelation that they had access to, which was the the covenant, right? In the Old Testament, the covenants of, of Yahweh with his people, then they were the beneficiaries of the grace of the death and resurrection of Christ. And he literally called them forth. And then those who did not entered into the fullness of condemnation. Make sense? Yeah, so it wasn't properly hell that those folks like Abraham and David were in. Correct. Right, because if it was fully into hell in the understanding of what we have now with hell post the resurrection of Christ, then they would have been punished for sins they weren't guilty of. And that's all part of the mystery. It kind of makes your head hurt when you try to figure out all this stuff. <laughs> There's a lot that makes my head hurt, Excellency. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but in the end, it, it, cling to the basics. That our God is so merciful, so just, so gracious, so wildly generous, and so loving, that even those who lived and died before he came into, the, into, into creation, into history, had access to his, his yeah. great gifts of eternal life. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. And thank you to Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed and support to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Excellency, gosh, I feel like I say it every week, but what an important conversation. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance this week. Well, no, my my pleasure. And and we'll revisit this, I think. And I really do think if if, if the opportunity arises to invite um, maybe a couple of constitutional scholars and let's go deeper into this because again it's it's important for us to understand the context in which we live as believers right and this is really important stuff yes Mm -hmm. yes 
And, uh, and may I ask you to please give us your blessing? Of course, of course. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. And may he grant you his wisdom, his blessing, and his peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Okay, my friend, enjoy these first weeks of summer. I'll see you next week. Yes. All the best. Thanks.